Chapter Seventeen of Diana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Diana by Susan Warner. Chapter Seventeen. The Use of Living. It was quite according to Diana's nature that as the winter went on, though still without news of Evan, her tumult and agony of mind quieted down into a calm and steadfast waiting. Her spirit was too healthy for suspicion, too true for doubt and put away doubt and suspicion, what was left but the assurance that there had been some accident or mistake, from the consequences of which she was suffering, no doubt, but which would all be made right, and come out clear so soon as there could be an opportunity for explanation. For that there was nothing to do but wait a little. With the returning mild weather, Evan would be able to procure a furlough. He would be at her side. And then, nothing then but union and joy. She could wait, and even in the waiting her healthy spirit as it were sloughed off care and came back again to its usual placid strong bright condition so the winter went a winter which was ever after a blank in diana's remembrance and the cold weather broke up into the frosts and thaws that sugar-makers love and in such a march day it was the word came to mrs starling's house that old squire bowdoin was dead the like weather never failed in after years to bring back to Diana that one day, and its tidings, and the strange shock they gave her. "'Twas kind of sudden,' said the newsbringer, who was Joe Bartlett. He was took all to once and just dropped, like a ripe chestnut. "'Why, like a ripe chestnut?' said Mrs. Starling sharply. "'Well, I had to say something, and that come first. The scripter do speak of a shock of corn in his season, don't it, Miss Starling?' "'What's the likeness between a shock of corn and a chestnut, Joe? "'I can't abide to hear folks talk nonsense. "'Who's at Elmfield?' "'Ain't nary one there that had ought to be there. "'Nary one but the help.' "'But they're coming?' said Mrs. Starling, "'lifting up her head for the answer. "'Well, I can't say. "'Evan, he's too fur, "'and I guess men in his place hain't their chice. "'And his folks is flourishy kind of bodies. "'I don't set no count on em, for my part.' "'Well, everybody else'll be there, and shame em if they ain't,' said Mrs. Starling. "'How's your mother, Joe?' "'Well, I guess she's ripe,' said Joe, with a slow intonation, loving and reverent. "'But she's goin' to hold on to this state of things yet a while. Good day to you.' Diana went to the old man's funeral with her mother, in a sort of tremble of spirits, looking forward to what she might possibly see or hear. But no one was there, no one in whom she had any interest.' None of Mr. Bowdoin's grandchildren could make it convenient to come to his funeral. The large gathering of friends and neighbors and distant relations were but an unmeaning crowd to Diana's perceptions. What difference would this change at Elmfield make in her own prospects? Would Mrs. Reverdy and her set come to Elmfield as usual, and so draw Evan as a matter of course? They might not, perhaps, but what difference could it be to Diana? Evan would come at all events, and under any circumstances— even if his coming let the secret out. He would come, and nothing would keep him from it. The necessity of seeing her would be above all other except military necessities. Diana thought she wished the old gentleman had not died. But it could make no difference. As soon as he could, Evan would be there. She returned to her quiet waiting. But now nature began to be noisy about her. It seemed that everything had a voice. Spring winds said, "'He is coming.' the perfume of opening buds was sweet with his far-off presence the very gales that chased the clouds to her fancy chased the minutes as well the waking up of the household and farm activities 
said that now Diana's inner life would come back to its wonted course and arrangements. The spring winds blew themselves out, spring buds opened into full leafage, spring activities gradually merged into the steady routine of summer. And still Diana saw nothing, and still she heard nothing of Evan. She was patient now by force of will, doggedly trusting. She would not doubt. None of the family came to Elmfield, so there was no news by the way that could reach her. Mrs. Starling watched the success of her experiment, and was satisfied. Will began to come about the house more and more. It was near the end of summer, more than a year since her first introduction to Evan, that Diana found herself again one day at Mother Bartlett's cottage. She always made visits there from time to time. Today she had come for no special reason, but a restlessness which possessed her at home. The old lady was in her usual chimney-corner, knitting, as a year ago, and Diana, having prepared the midday repast and cleared away after it, was sitting on the doorstep at the open door, whence her eye went out to the hillside pasture and followed the two cows which were slowly moving about there. It was as quiet a bit of nature as could be found anywhere, and Diana was very quiet looking at it. But Mother Bartlett's eye was upon her much more than upon her work, which, indeed, could go on quite well without such supervision. She broke silence at last, speaking with an imperceptible little sigh. "'And so, dear, the minister preached his sermon about the fashions last Sabbath?' "'About fashion,' said Diana. "'He had promised it long ago.' "'And what did he say, dear?' "'He said, "'The fashion of this world passeth away.' "'But he said something more, I suppose. "'I could have said that.' "'He said a great deal more,' replied Diana. "'It was a very curious sermon.' "'As I hain't heard it, and you have, perhaps you'll oblige me with some more of it.' "'It was a very curious sermon,' Diana repeated. "'Not in the least like what you would have expected. "'There wasn't much about fashion in it, and yet somehow it seemed to be all that. "'What was his text?' "'I can't tell. Something about the grace of the fashion of it. "'I don't remember how the words went.' "'I know, I guess,' said the old lady. "'Twas in James, weren't it? "'Something like this?' THE SUN IS NO SOONER RISEN WITH A BURNING HEAT? YES, YES, THAT WAS IT. BUT IT WITHERETH THE GRASS, AND THE FLOWER THEREOF FALLETH, AND THE GRACE OF THE FASHION OF IT PERISHETH. THAT WAS IT, ASSENTED DIANA. SO HE PREACHED ABOUT THE SHORTNESS OF LIFE? NO, NOT AT ALL. HE BEGAN WITH THOSE WORDS, AND JUST A SENTENCE OR TWO, AND IT WAS BEAUTIFUL, TOO, MOTHER EXPLAINING THEM. And then he said the Bible hadn't much in it directly speaking of our fashions. He would give us what there was, and let us make what we could of it. So he did. "'You can make a good deal of it if you try,' said Mrs. Bartlett. "'And then, dear?' Then he went off, you'd never think where, to the last chapter of Proverbs, and he described the woman described there. And he made her out so beautiful and good and clever and wise, that somehow, without saying a word about fashion— he made us feel how she would never have had any concern about it, how she was above it, and five times more beautiful without, than she would have been with, the foolish ways of people nowadays. But he didn't say that, you only felt it. I don't much believe there are any such women, mother. I hope and believe you'll make just such a one, Diana. I, said the girl, with a curious intonation. Then subsiding again immediately, she sat as she had sat at her own door a year ago, with arms folded, gazing out upon the summery hill pasture where the cows were leisurely feeding. 
but now her eyes had a steady, hard look, not busy with the sunshiny turf or the deep blue sky against which the line of the hill cut so soft and clear. Then the vision had been all outward. "'And that was his sermon?' said the old lady, with a dash of disappointment. "'No, oh, no,' said Diana, rousing herself. "'He went on, then. How shall I tell you? Do you remember a verse in the Revelation about the church coming down as a bride adorned for her husband?' "'Aye,' said the old lady, with a gratified change of voice. "'Well?' He went on to describe that adornment. I can't tell you how he did it. I can't repeat what he said. But it was inner adornment, you know, all glorious within. I remember, he said. And without a word more about what he started with, he made one feel that there is no real adornment but that kind, nor any other worth a thought. I heard Kate Boddington tell Mother, as we came out of church, that she felt as cheap as dirt, with all her silk dress and new bonnet, and Mrs. Carpenter, who was close by, said she felt there wasn't a bit of her that would bear looking at. What did your mother say? Nothing. She didn't understand it, she said. And, Di, how did you feel? I don't think I felt anything, mother. How come that about? I don't know. I believe it seems to me as if the fashion of this world never passed away. It's the same thing, year in and year out. "'What ails you, Diana?' her old friend asked, after a pause. "'Nothing. I'm sort of tired. I don't see how folks stand it, to live a long life.' "'But life has not been very hard to you, honey.' "'It needn't be hard for that,' Diana answered, with a kind of choke in her voice. "'Perhaps the hardest of all would be to go on an unvarying jog-trot, and to know it would always be so all one's life.' "'What makes life all of a sudden so tiresome to you, Di?' "'Something I haven't got, I suppose,' said the girl drearily. "'I have enough to eat and drink.' "'You ain't as bright as you used to be a year ago.' "'I have grown older, and have got more experience.' "'If life is good for nothing else, Di, it's good to make ready for what comes after.' "'I don't believe that doctrine, mother,' said Diana energetically. "'Life is meant to be life, and not getting ready to live.' "'Tisn't meant to be all brown and sawdusty here, "'that people may have it more fresh and pleasant by and by. "'No, but to drive them out of this pasture, maybe. "'If the cows found always the grass long in the meadow, "'when do you think they'd go up the hill?' "'A quick, restless change of position was the only answer to this, "'an answer most unlike the natural calm grace of Diana's movements. "'The old lady looked at her wistfully, doubtfully, two or three times up and down from her knitting, before speaking again. And then speaking was prevented, for the other door opened and the minister came in. Basil was always welcome, whatever house or company he entered. He could fall in with any mood, take up any subject, sympathize in anybody's concerns. That was part of his secret of power, but that was not all. There was about him an aura of happiness, so to speak, a steadfastness of the inner nature, which gave a sense of calm to others, almost by the force of sympathy, and the strength of a quiet will, which was, however, inflexible. All that was restless, uncertain, and unsatisfied in men's hearts and lives, found something in him to which they clung as if it had been an anchor of hope, and so his popularity had a very wide, and at first sight very perplexing range. The two women in Mrs. Bartlett's cottage were glad to see him, and they had reason— Perhaps, for he was very quick, he discerned that the social atmosphere had been somewhat hazy when he came in, for through all his stay his talk was so bright and strong that it met the needs of both hearers. 
Even Diana laughed with him and listened to him, and when he rose to take leave, she asked if he came on horseback to-day. "'No, I am ease-loving. I borrowed Mr. Chalmers' buggy.' "'Which way are you going now, sir, if you please?' He hesitated an instant, looked at her, and answered quite demurely, "'I think your way.' "'Would you be so kind as to take me so far as home with you, then?' "'I don't see any objection to that,' said Basil, in the same cool manner." and Diana hastily took her bonnet and kissed her old friend, and in another minute or two she was in the buggy, and they were driving off. If the minister suspected somewhat, he would spoil nothing by being in a hurry. He drove leisurely, saying that it was too hot weather to ask much exertion even from a horse, and making little slight remarks, in a manner so gentle and quiet as to be very reassuring. But if that was what Diana wanted, she wanted a great deal of it, for she sat looking straight between the edges of her sunbonnet, absolutely silent, hardly even making the replies her companion's words called for. At last he was silent too. The good gray horse went very soberly on, not urged at all, but yet even a slow rate of motion will take you to the end of anything, given the time, and every minute saw the rods of Diana's road getting behind her. I suppose she felt that, and spoke at last in the desperate sense of it, when a person is under that urgency, he does not always choose his words. Mr. Masters, is there any way of making life anything but a miserable failure? The lowered cadences of Diana's voice, a thread of bitterness in her utterance, quite turned the minister's thought from anything like a light or gay answer. He said very gravely, Nobody's life need be that. How are you to get rid of it? Of that result, you mean? Yes. "'Will you state the difficulty as it appears to you?' "'Why, look at it,' said Diana, more hesitatingly. "'What do most people's lives amount to? "'What does mine? "'To dress oneself, and eat and drink, "'and go through a round of things, "'which only means that you will dress yourself, "'and eat and drink again, "'and do the same things to-morrow, and the next day. "'What does it all amount to in the end?' "'Is life no more than that to you?' "'Diana hesitated, but then, with a tone still lowered, said, no. The minister was silent now, and presently Diana went on again. The whole world seems to me just so. People live and die, and they might just as well not have lived, for all that their being in the world has done, and yet they have lived, and suffered. More than she knew was told in the utterance of that last word. The minister was still not in a hurry to speak. When he did, his question came as a surprise. "'You believe the first chapter of Genesis, Miss Diana?' "'Certainly,' she said, feeling with downcast heart. "'Oh, now a sermon.' "'You believe that God made the earth, and made man to occupy it?' "'Yes, certainly.' "'What do you think he made him for?' "'I know what the catechism says,' Diana began slowly. "'No, no, my question has nothing to do with the catechism.' "'Do you believe that the Creator's intention was that men should live purposeless lives, like what you describe?' I can't believe it. Then what purpose are we here for? Why am I, and why are you on the earth? I don't know, said Diana faintly. The talk was not turning out well for her wish, she thought. To find that out, and to get in harmony with the answer, is the great secret of life. Will you help me, Mr. Masters? said Diana humbly. It is all dark and wild to me. I see no comfort in anything. If there were nothing better than this, one would rather not be on the earth." Mr. Masters might have pondered with a little surprise on the strength of the currents that flow sometimes where the water looks calm, 
but he had no time, and in truth was in no mood for moralizing just then. His answer was somewhat abrupt, though gentle as possible. "'What do you want, Miss Diana?' But the answer to that was a choked sob, and then, breaking all bounds of her habit and intention, a passionate storm of tears. Diana was frightened at herself, but nevertheless the sudden probe of the question, with the sympathetic gentleness of it, and the too great contrast between the speaker's happy, calm, strong content, and her own disordered, distracted life, suddenly broke her down. Neither, if you open the sluice gates to such a current, can you immediately get them shut again. This she found, though greatly afraid of the conclusions her companion might draw. For a few minutes her passion was utterly uncontrolled. If Basil drew conclusions, he was not in a hurry to make them known. He did not at that time follow the conversation any further, only remarking cheerfully, and sympathetically, too. We must have some more talk about this, Miss Diana, but we'll take another opportunity." and so presently left her at her own door, with the warm, strong grasp of the hand that many a one in trouble had learned to know. There is strange intelligence somehow in our fingers. They can say what lips fail to say. Diana went into the house feeling that her minister was a tower of strength and a treasury of kindness. She found company. Mrs. Flandon and her mother were sitting together. "'Have you come home to stay, Diana?' was her mother's sarcastic salutation. "'How come you and the dominie to be a-ridin' together?' was the other lady's blunder. "'I had the chance,' said Diana, "'and I asked him to bring me. It's too hot for walking.' "'And how come he to be in a buggy, so convenient? He always goes tearin' around on the back of that air gray horse, I thought. I never see a minister ride so afore. And I don't think, Miss Starling, it's suitable. What if he was to break his neck, on the way to visit some sick man?' "'Jim Treadwell broke his neck out of a wagon,' responded Mrs. Starling. "'Ah, well, there ain't no security no place. "'But don't it strike you now, Miss Starling, "'that a minister had ought to set an example of steady goin', "'and not turn the heads of the young men and young women with his capers. "'He is a young man himself, Mrs. Flandon,' Diana was bold to say. "'Well, I know he is,' said the lady, in a disapproving way. "'I know he is, and he can't help it. "'But if I had my way—' "'I'd always have a minister as much as fifty-year-old. "'It looks better,' said Mrs. Flandon complacently. "'And it is better. "'What is he to do all the first fifty years of his life, then?' "'Well, my dear, I hain't got the arrangement of things. "'I don't know. "'I know Will would hitch up and carry you anywheres you want to go, "'if it's a wagon you want any time.' "'After that, Will made good his mother's promise, "'so far as intentions went.' He was generally on hand when anything was to be done in which himself and his smart buggy could be useful. Indeed, he was very often on hand at other times, dropping in after supper and appearing with baskets, which were found to contain some of the Flandon pears, or the fine red apples that grew in a corner of the lot, and were famous. Some of his own bee's honey Will brought another time, and a bushel of uncommonly fine nuts. Of course, this was in the fall to which the weary weeks of Diana's summer had at length dragged themselves out. But if Will hoped that honey would sweeten Diana's reception of him and his attentions, as yet it did not seem to have the desired effect. In truth, though Will could never suspect it, her brain was so heavy with other thoughts that she was only in a vague and general way conscious of his presence, and of his officious gallantries scarcely aware. So little aware, indeed, of their bearing, that on two or three occasions she suffered herself to be conveyed in Will's buggy, to or from some gathering of the neighbors. 
Mrs. Starling or Mrs. Flandin had arranged it, and Diana had quite blindly fallen into the trap. And then the young man, not unreasonably elated and inspired, began to make his visits to Mrs. Starling's house more frequently than ever. It was little he did to recommend himself when he was there. He generally sat watching Diana, carrying on a spasmodic and interrupted conversation with Mrs. Starling about farm affairs, and seizing the opportunity of a dropped spool or an unwound skein of yarn to draw near Diana and venture some word to her. Poor Diana felt in those days so much like a person whose earthly ties are all broken, that it did not come into her head in what a different light she stood to other eyes. End of chapter 17